Hi, welcome to Pitt Town Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Well, that's how this end of the 7th century BC message starts. It's an oracle. Uh, Six of the prophetic uh, books in the Old Testament tell us that these prophets received an oracle. Uh, The the Hebrew word is Masah, and uh, it's translated as oracle in the, uh, the Holman and in the ESV, or prophecy in the New International Version. The New Living Translation simply translates it as uh, message. But it's a funny thing with the the Hebrew language. Um, Every word has got a root meaning, and sometimes that gives us a clue as far as what the the, uh, way it's it's meant to be understood. And um, what the root meaning of this word that is translated here as oracle, the root meaning is burden. And uh, that's how the King James Version and the RSV and the New, International, uh, New American Standard Version all translate it, because that's what it was to prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Hosea, Nahum, Zechariah and Habakkuk. God's message was not a light load for these prophets. They were burdens uh, that the prophets had to carry, and they were burdens for the people who received the message. Uh, And so we need to keep that in mind as we're looking at this uh, book. Uh, If someone came today and declared the exact same message for our generation, I don't think it would be popular. There will be resistance And it would take an act of grace from God to make people's hearts open to that message. Uh, So we're going to pray right now that God will do a miracle in us. Heavenly Father, we know that this world desperately needs the good news of Jesus, but are not prepared to acknowledge the true spiritual state of the human heart. And we acknowledge that even your church can forget or get distracted. Please help me to teach and apply this oracle faithfully to our situation. And please prepare our minds and our hearts for your message. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk had some disturbing questions for God. Have you ever had a disturbing question for God? Not that it disturbs God, but it's a disturbing one for you. Uh, in verse 3, there's the how long question, and then there's the why question. You know the how long question, don't you? Do you remember when you were a kid and going on a trip in the car with your parents? How long the version is, are we there yet? Uh, you know that uh, there is one way of actually uh, ensuring that uh, that's minimised, and that is you, uh, nowadays, of course, people just um, give... Uh, you know, on the iPad or whatever, um, a, 
a video to watch, but I still find even if they've got the video, they do it automatically halfway through the video. They're not even listening and they say, are we there yet? And they're not even listening. What you do, you give them the map and you do it to them. And so you keep them going, are you there? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And then uh, for some children, of course, the why question. You know, uh, they can extend out each answer requires a why after it and they can keep you going and it's a little um, game for them really how many times how many times did you get um, mum and dad to actually answer your why oh, 20 times um, her back book had a different way of actually asking these questions and he wasn't annoying God by asking the questions but before we look at those questions and God's answer I'm sorry, I'm going to have to give you some historical context. Some people are really turned off by history and anything historical, so I hope I'll make it a bit simpler, a bit clearer. Uh, so I'm going to mention some dates, and as soon as I say it, you can forget them. But basically, uh, we're dealing with this time between the 7th century BC. That's all the, uh, the, um, the numbers beginning with six, 612 and then going into the 6th century and all of a sudden uh, 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 for the uh, 6th century you, you had the 500 numbers, okay? So in 612, in the 7th century BC, um, that's somewhere time after that, that's when Habakkuk is speaking and sometime before 587 BC when Babylon takes the nation Judah into captivity. Now, in 612 BC, the major world player was changing. The Chaldeans or Babylonians had captured Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And as soon as I say Nineveh, a lot of you will actually have some sort of association with another prophet in the Old Testament. Who was it? Jonah. Jonah that's right. The capital of Assyria was uh, Nineveh. And the prophet Jonah had walked the streets of Nineveh over a hundred years before. And when Nineveh heard Jonah's message from God, they repented. They stopped rebelling against God and God forgave them. But then over a hundred years after that, they'd gone back to their old ways. And God was now judging the Assyrians by raising up the Babylonians. And the Babylonian king at the time, he's also a rather famous one that uh, a lot of people have heard of, whether it be from the Bible or from ancient history, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar II, he was in charge of controlling the uh, Babylonian army and defeating the Assyrian army. And, uh, and at that point, the Babylonians came into control. And then about seven years after that, 605 BC, there was a famous battle on the border of what is now Turkey and Syria. It was the Battle of Carchemish. And it was here where Babylon defeated not only Egypt, which was another one of the big world players, but what was left of the Assyrian army. Babylon was the world power. They were the ones in control. So no wonder, 600 years after that, when you come into the New Testament time, John wrote about 
Babylon in the book of Revelation as a code word for the big mega power of his day, which was the Roman Empire. So with that background, have you got sort of that going around in the back of your head there, the general idea? With this background, we hear Habakkuk's first question in verse 2. How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help? And I imagine many of us have cried out something like that. Many of us, of us have had reason to cry that out in the last year. Um, Sally was absolutely right. It was a horrible year in so many ways from so many of us. Habakkuk was seeing violence and, in his words, iniquity and destruction and strife all around him. And it seems as if God is just looking on without any concern. And that's what was uh, behind Habakkuk's second question. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? It looks as if God is compromising his integrity. Habakkuk knows that, perce that perception, it's wrong. He knows God is good. He, know, he knows God cares when there is sin in the world. He knows that God hates sin. He knows that God hates evil and when people are treating other people improperly. So Habakkuk has taken all of that information of what he knows about God and he's trying to process it. And his brain at this point is just churning out gobbledygook. He can't mesh it. It doesn't make sense. He knows God could fix it just like that. He wants God to straighten out his thinking, Habakkuk's thinking, as well as fix everything up. And so you might be thinking that Habakkuk is referring to Babylon when he's talking about all these terrible things, these acts of violence, but he's not. This is the surprise. Look at verse 4, if you've got your Bible. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. The word law here is the, the Hebrew word Torah. And it generally means law, regulation, instruction or teaching. Sometimes it's talking about the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But it's also a summary word for the entire revelation that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was given to God's people by God through Moses. And the Torah was to show them God's story and what God is like and how they should live as God's people. God's special society, which must be based on God's law if that society is to reflect what God is like and therefore what God's family should be like. But verse 4 tells us that the law was ineffective. It was paralysed. It was frozen. In what sense can God's law be made ineffective? After all, isn't God God? How can God's law be ineffective? <clears throat> One of the kings of Judah... King Josiah had discovered 
some of the lost law of God when they were cleaning out the temple. And he started a reformation where the people of Judah made a commitment to keep this newfound law. Uh, Francis Schaeffer uh, once made a, a very important point about the difference between revival and reformation. He said that uh, in history, you, you know the idea of revival when you come, uh, you hear about a church uh, being caught on fire with the Lord and it, there's a revival and there used to be when I was much younger songs about revival and God doing a great work through his Holy Spirit. And Francis Schaeffer, Schaeffer actually said that if you look at the history of the church, there has never been a revival that has stuck unless it had been preceded by a reformation. That is, the hearts of the people of God had taken on God's word seriously. The word of God and the spirit of God worked together to do mighty things. So how can God's law be made ineffective? It happened when Judah rebelled against God's law. It happened because God's people were disobedient to God and not trusting him. And it may be a surprise, but God's people were the ones that Habakkuk had described as oppressive. He was seeing violence being done by Jews to fellow Jews. That's what was upsetting him at the beginning of the book of Habakkuk. They had the law. It was there, but the law was not inside their hearts. How many Bibles have you got at home? You see, you can have a dozen Bibles at home, but if you're not committed to reading one and reading it and trusting and obeying the revealed Word of God, it's about as useful as a doorstop. When God's Word is not in the rightful place in our hearts, we automatically begin doing terrible things to the people around us. Look at the second half of verse 4. For the wicked <coughs> restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Another way of looking at it is, if we have mucked up our vertical relationship with God, it will definitely muck up our horizontal relationships with each other. It will express itself somehow. So any message that comes from the book of Habakkuk has to end up asking, if we're going to be making the right application of this oracle, this burden, we need to start close to home asking, is there any oppression or violence or strife or escalating conflict that we should be dealing with. Uh, several years ago, uh, most of you, some of you don't know uh, Brian Hall. He used to be here. Now he's uh, ministering at another church. Um, he uh, put our church onto a book called uh, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, S-A-N-D-E. Don't confuse it with Ken Sandell. Okay. In it, he outlined what he called the peacemaker's pledge. 
A commitment to biblical conflict resolution. Now, you remember how this is tying in that it's taking God's word and applying it to the people around us. It had four out principles, four principles. The first is to glorify God. Uh, the next three principles, you can uh, a lot of people would, will nod to automatically, no matter where you are. But this first principle, um, an atheist won't have this one. To, first, to glorify God. So when you're interacting with someone, you're saying, how can in this exchange with this other person bring about God's name being honoured, God being glorified? And the second one was, get the log out of your own eye. That's alluding to one of uh, Jesus' uh, parables, the story you know, of this uh, guy who went up to a guy to take a little speck out of his eye. But he had this whopping big plank in his eye first. Can you imagine the silliness of that situation? And so the second step of peacemaking in a godly way is to look at yourself. Get the log out of your own eye first. Um, which means you have to have a pretty clear look at yourself and see what's happening. Are you being godly in the way that you've been responding with the people around you? And thirdly, gently restore. I love those two words put together because you can get either of them out of kilter. You restore a person, you help them to come to a place where they come under the word of God, but you can apply God's word in a very harsh way and you're not doing it gently. And in the other way, we can be so gentle with a person, we never actually use God's word and there is no restoration. So the third thing is to gently restore. First, to glorify God. Second, get the log out of your own eye. Third, gently restore. And fourthly, go and be reconciled. There's something very active about that, isn't it? That puts the onus on the person who recognises that there is a problem to go to the person. That might be physically going to them, making a phone call. Phone calls and emails, um, they're not as good as actually seeing a person. If we were all committed to that kind of godly behaviour in our relationships, then conflict wouldn't have an opportunity to escalate. But all of that is going to be risky. It's a risky thing to do these things. But all that is risk, uh, uh, it's all risky. It, takes, um, it starts with you looking at yourself and you look at yourself by using the Bible. The Bible is a kind of a spiritual mirror as you read the Bible and you see how far fall you and I fall short of the glory of God, the perfection of God, which is why I am convinced that growth groups are so important, uh, whatever they're called. We call them growth groups at uh, this church, and I think it's a really good name. Uh, it's not just Bible study, although Bible study is where we're focused around God's word, but we're also praying, and we're reading God's word, and we're applying it to each other. And it's very difficult to do that by yourself. It's impossible to do it by yourself. You've got to meet with other Christians to be able to deal with it. You know that a lot of the letters in the New Testament... They are written to churches. They're meant to be read by a group of Christians together and then for those Christians to say, well, we really mucked it up there, didn't we? Maybe we can go, what, what, what is God telling us? How do we deal with this? 
Bible study, personal Bible study is good. But I think a lot of the real work that is done in our spiritual growth is when we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It takes a lot of repentance. It takes a lot of humility. And it takes an extraordinary amount of love, an aggressive concern for the well-being of another person rather than my concerns. And for the nation of Judah, the damage was too deep. And God was going to bring a radical treatment. There are many really, really horrible diseases throughout the world. Illnesses that are life-threatening. Illnesses that uh, you would never want to have them. But I cannot think of any particular really, really bad illness that can be fixed up by just sticking a Band-Aid on top. The worse the illness, the more radical the treatment is needed. In verse 5, we find God's treatment. Look at the nations and observe... Be utterly astounded, for something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. How shall God answer Habakkuk's questions in verses 2 and 3? God raises up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And God's people are taken away from the promised land in 587 BC after Habakkuk's oracle. How shall God answer these questions? Babylon was a powerful and proud and cruel nation. And God was using them to punish Judah. Habakkuk had a problem with that, and I can understand it. Um, at the 8.30 service, when I asked this question, everyone stuck up their hand. When I asked at the 10 o'clock service, probably about three quarters stuck up their hand. I'll be fascinated by the response in this particular group. I went to school at a time when there was such a thing as the cane. Stick up your hand if you have experienced the cane at school. Okay, look around. They are the people you need to talk to after if you say, I don't get it. Okay? This is the illustration I'd like to use for this. Uh, I'm thinking of the time when I went up to get the cane. Yes, it happened to me. And... Uh, going up, and now it's, it's fabricated, okay? I'm going up to the teacher, and the teacher's got the cane there. And it just so happens, as I'm coming up to get the just desserts, someone else is coming up as well. And that person who's coming up is the school bully who had been picking on me. And as I'm going up, getting ready to have the cane, or uh, in my days it was also called the cuts, for obvious reasons, um, I'm thinking, I'm glad he's here. If I'm going to get it, I'm glad he's going to get it. Imagine for a moment that as the hand is extended out, 
the teacher takes the cane and hands it to the school bully and says, right, give him the cuts. How would you feel? Angry? Shamed. Babylon was a bully. The worst kind. And Habakkuk couldn't understand why God would allow a bully to be the instrument of his justice and his judgment. And God's people are taken into exile by this bully. They lose all the things that they valued until all that they had was God. Can you see how God's using his power to create a situation where there's a possibility now of change, but at what cost that change would be? It brings uh, Habakkuk uh, to his next existential crisis. Uh, You read about it in verse 12. Speaking to God, Are you not from eternity, Yahweh my God? My Holy One, you won't die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why? Do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while the one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You know what he's done right there, don't you? He's actually put himself into the situation, I am more righteous than the Babylonians. And most of um, uh, Judah would be able to say, well, yeah, okay, we admit we've been pretty bad, but not as bad as the Babylonians. We should be punishing the Babylonians. God should be using us as an instrument of punishment and and, uh, judgment on them, not the other way around. What is missing in Habakkuk's understanding of the situation? Habakkuk is such a, a powerful book in looking at our human psyche and the way that we work and the way that we think and then actually comparing it or contrasting it to the way that God thinks. He's identified so many true qualities about God. In verse 12, God is eternal. That is, he's outside of time and space. He's holy. That is, he's totally separate from anything that is wrong, evil, horrible. And verse 12, God is Ultimately, in control, the Chaldeans are God's tools. He takes evil tools and uses them to achieve his righteous plans. And Habakkuk can't understand how God works that way. God is pure. His holiness, his separateness includes his purity. No one is pure like God. He is unique in his absolute purity. Now, as we contemplate what Habakkuk already knew about God, which was true, we who live on this side of the first Christmas and the first Easter, 
of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, we've got some more pieces to put together that help us begin to answer the questions or at least ways begin to understand the questions that Habakkuk was raising. God once came to earth and he still had all of his God attributes. If he didn't have all of his God attributes, he can't be God. God is made up of his attributes. He did not give up being God. But now he was God and man at the same time. Jesus was and is eternal. Jesus had control over the wind and the waves and over demons and sickness and even death. Jesus alone lived the pure life. Jesus has the authority and the desire to forgive sins. He is God in the flesh. And so, how could God, even God in the flesh, live among sinners? That is the same essential problem that Habakkuk expressed. It's the reason why there's a church today. There is a reason why there are people of God today made up of we're finite creatures and we're also fallen creatures. We are sinful creatures who belong to an infinite, pure and loving creator. How does God mesh it? Only God had that eternal perspective of why he did what had to be done in order to express his character perfectly 2,000 years ago and also in the days of Habakkuk and also today. We can't get that perspective. We can trust the one and only God who does have that perspective, though. Mankind has a problem that could only be dealt with one way. And that's God's way, because we could never make up God's plan. God's plan is so far above anything that we could have come up with. What was his way of reconciling us? Someone pure who could take the penalty for the impure. Someone eternal and infinite who could take on the sins of the world, John 3.16. But it would be costly to the creator. More costly than anyone could possibly imagine or appreciate. Some of you will know this song. Uh, it was written in the 1800s. There is a green hill far away outside a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. Verse 3, we may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. We may not know and we can't tell what it cost God who came in the flesh to make us friends with him.
And after reading Habakkuk chapter 1, it's okay if you still find that his questions aren't resolved for you in a way that satisfies you intellectually. I don't think they're meant to. If Habakkuk had lived 600 years later, he may have heard another man ask a question that was even deeper than the ones that he had been asking. Have you heard this question? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was uttered by the God-man Jesus. And if you had been there, as Jesus was dying on the cross, and if Habakkuk was there and he was hearing these words, would you be able to help him understand what it meant? We do have some more pieces in the puzzle here. If you had been there, you could have said to Habakkuk, do you know the answer to this one? Why, this man on the cross is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because as he is being forsaken by God, it means that you and I won't be forsaken. That's God's plan. Isn't that a thought that's way, way above anything that humans could come up with? Was it worth the burden, Habakkuk, that God gave you way back then to talk about unanswerable questions? Does that finally satisfy you, Habakkuk, when you hear these answers? I suspect now where Habakkuk is, he's quite satisfied with the answers. Next week, we're going to continue looking at this book of Habakkuk. It's three chapters. We're dividing it up a little bit. <coughs> but next week, we're going to see how the oracle helps us to explore one of the biggest questions we need to work out, and that is, how do I live by trusting God? How do I live? How do I live by faith? What does it mean to live by faith? And uh, I'd encourage you to start preparing for that by reading the next section of Habakkuk in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Particular note on verse 4. The just shall live by faith, or the justified shall live by faith, and what that means for us.